Here's the short version, the in a nutshell version of today's interview. The Museum of the Bible does in fact have forgeries. In fact, all their copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls are forgeries. That is very true, although somewhat misleading information. News outlets are going bonkers in some cases, basically spreading what ends up being uh, misconceptions in the ideas of your average normal reader of these uh, of these articles and of the headlines. In reality, these are just tiny fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And while there are all 16 of them are forgeries, it has no impact whatsoever on the authentic Dead Sea Scrolls or on how they weigh in on biblical scholarship. It has no impact whatsoever. It should not affect your uh, your beliefs or your faith as a Christian in any way, shape, or form. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you now the full download. I brought my friend on, uh, Wesley Huff, who's going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the forgeries, the nature of the forgeries, its impact on either Christianity. Um, there is a lesson to learn here. Or the Museum of the Bible, its potential impact on them. And then we're going to talk about some Twitter posts I've pulled up to show the misinformation that this kind of reckless news writing uh, puts out there and creates in the Twitterverse. So here it comes. Uh, I hope that this is a blessing to you. And I uh, just pray that God uses it to give you wisdom. All right, Wes, thanks for joining me, man. I'm really grateful to, to have you here. Um, Wes is a good friend of mine as as well as um, a really smart guy. If you wouldn't mind, tell us kind of like what your what your studies are so we understand as you're talking about this issue. Who are you? Who's the guy we're listening to? Yeah, so I am a PhD student at the University of Toronto in the area of biblical studies. Um, I study New Testament manuscripts and particularly the transmission of the early New Testament texts. So we're talking about, you know, second century to fourth century and uh, the the bookish writing culture that existed within uh, the Christian communities in, in that area. That's good, man. We want to talk to a bookish person. That's sort of what we're looking for here. Um, with the issue That's of the right, Dead Sea yeah. Scrolls, <laughs> yeah, this this news came out and people see the headlines. And um, I think that they're they're shook because they realize the Dead Sea Scrolls are um, this, this really important verification of the reliability of the scriptures. At the same time, they see this headline that says Dead Sea Scrolls in Museum of the Bible are all forgeries. So could you give us like just a recap? What what is the news? What is the thing that's that's floating around that people are hearing? Yeah, so uh, the listeners may know or have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they're a collection of Jewish literature uh, that were discovered between the, the 1940s and the 1960s in the caves in the desert region of Judea, um, particularly in Israel and the West Bank. And a large of collection of those uh, were found in this, this area uh, there were 11 caves in an area northwest of the Dead Sea called Qumran. And that's that's where the the community that, that developed a lot of these documents that were discovered later um, were discovered in, in the in these caves. Yeah. Uh, and they were like there, a there weird other... group of people, right? We, I mean, well, we probably shouldn't get into all of it, but they were just kind of this weird reclusive, almost like a religious cult uh, type of group of people, right? Yeah, so you have like, two main sects of Jewish groups within the New Testament, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which are constantly intellectually sparring with Jesus. But there was another group called the Esses, and they were uh, a group of, of Jews who uh, believed that the, the temple in Jerusalem was corrupt. And so they'd taken off to this region. Um, they'd sort of made like a mock temple out there. And they, they had all sorts of, of laws that they were keeping um, that, they thought would save them in in one way or another 
uh, and thought that everybody back in Jerusalem was, uh, uh, you know, corrupt and and not not doing everything the right way. They were a little bit apocalyptic in in that sense. If you read some of these Dead Sea Scrolls, there's like the Great War Scroll, uh, which talks about end of the pipish things. Uh, like you'd read the the book of Revelation in the Bible, they sort of had their own versions of that kind of stuff. So they were they were a little bit of an oddball group, um, especially when we compare them to uh, some of the the groups we we hear about in the Bible. And so there were a lot of these other documents that were found in and around that area, not just in Qumran, uh, but but uh, sort of down the coast of the Dead Sea. But Qumran is is where the the majority are. Uh, those 11 caves. So there are about 100,000 of these manuscripts that were, were discovered. Um, the vast majority of those are housed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem uh, at the, the Shrine of the Book, um, which is uh, a display area there. Uh, and they're not all, I think we think of them all as biblical documents. About 25% of the manuscripts found in the Qumran caves were biblical in nature and then there's a host mm. of other written books um but i think it is it is pertinent to point out that all of the old testament books apart from esther uh, are found in in the dead sea scrolls with the dead sea scrolls just in if you could summarize for us what impact has the dead sea scrolls had overall uh, as far as christians in the bible are concerned what, what is what has this told us you know how has it informed us this discovery yeah, they were super interesting because up until a certain point, we really didn't have that much super, super early stuff for the biblical Old Testament. In fact, for a long time, we had far earlier evidence for the New Testament in terms of like the, the manuscripts, the artifacts, uh, than we did for the, the Old Testament. Um, what we were relying on for a long time for the translation of our Old Testaments uh, was what's referred to as the Masoretic text. So there are a group of a group of Jewish scribes. They kind of start somewhere in the ninth century and go on to the uh, approximately the thirteenth century. And uh, they were very diligent, very pious Jewish scribes who who copied the text uh, very very carefully. <clears throat> and that text, the Masoretic text, ended up being our like the basis for our Old Testament. We didn't have too much before that. Um, until we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then all of a sudden we had this really early evidence uh, that, that started um, in, in the first century and went, went back uh, for a couple hundred years um, into the time before Jesus and shed some light on the, the Hebrew text light in potentially what Jesus would have been seeing and the, the Jews in that area. Um, and it, it gave us a, a bigger picture in terms of that. So it made a tremendous impact on the, the our understanding of the text in one way. In another way, it didn't really blow up anything that we knew about the Old Testament. I mean, there were no revelations that, you know, completely revolutionized the way we read our Old, our old Testament mm -hmm. uh, or changed radically what we were looking at. Um, but it, it, intellectually, it did shed some light on, on a few key areas. Now, would you say that the Dead Sea Scrolls served in some way to confirm things that we already thought, like confirm the Christian view of Scripture or of the Bible in any way? Yeah, and it also helped uh, these documents, that, especially the ones that weren't 
biblical documents to shed light on some of the messianic expectations and uh, the, the ideas that, you know, we see in the New Testament mentioned about this sort of expectation that the Messiah was going to show up sometime around then. Um, and in fact, there are allusions, there are echoes within some of the Dead Sea Scroll documents that actually indicate that the Messiah um, or uh, Messiahs, because there was a belief that there would be two, uh, Messiah, um, the, the son of David and a Messiah, the son of Aaron, um, that these would be almost divine-like figures. And so some of the language that we see in the New Testament that's uh, portrayed on Jesus that, you know, in centuries past, uh, German redaction scholars said, you know, this this language, this high Christology, that that obviously came later because, I mean, no Jew would have been thinking like this. They obviously mm. ran into some Greeks and their Greeks were like, we don't care if the guy you're following is the Jewish Messiah. Um, we care if he's a son of God. Um and so then, you know, the, the idea was that the Christians were like, oh, son of God, maybe if we, you know, slide that into the, the way we're describing things, then maybe that'll, that'll make some impact. But if we look at the, the Qumran documents, if we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they actually have a lot of descriptions of the Jewish Messiah coming and being described in divine categories um, and uh, being described particularly as the us, the son of God in a very unique way. So in that sense, it it broadens our picture in how we understand, you know, some of the the ideas and expectations and categories for first century Judaism of Jesus' day. And in that way, shed some light on how we read the New Testament. Okay. And then the, the discovery that Etsy Scrolls, did it have any impact on, say, the reliability of the transmission of the text over time for people who think the Bible's been changed or that the Old Testament itself, you know, it, you know, the Masoretic texts from 900 AD didn't represent what was originally, you know, read by, say, the people in Jesus's day? Uh, what would you uh, say about that? Yeah, in some ways it did and in some ways it didn't. Uh, I mean, the... The major points that you'll hear when you hear discussions of this is that the Great Isaiah Scroll, which was easily the, the most well-preserved one, um, if you go into the the uh, the shrine of the book in Israel, um, you'll see the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's, it's sort of um, uh, displayed all out uh, around um, the outside of the wall. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's it's the entire book of what we would now consider the book of Isaiah. Uh and that's unusual. A lot of these are just fragmentary scraps. But in um, uh, in one of the caves, we found this whole scroll, and it is word for word exact to the Hebrew Masoretic text of Isaiah. So that spoke a lot to the transmission and to the copying process, uh, how exact and um, diligent the Jews in particular were of doing that. Now, you can make a lot of that. Uh, there are other documents uh, like the Jeremiah scroll, uh, which are not word for word exact. So I think you can overplay your hands a little bit there. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, I think what it did tell us is that it, it, any speculation in that giant gap between, you know, the Masoretes and uh, the Qumran community, um, any speculation as to what was going on there was complete, completely evaporated. Mm -hmm. Uh, because of what we found, all it did was confirm what the text looked like in Jesus's day and prior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what is, what is the news here? Let, let me see if I can summarize, correct me if you feel like I'm getting this wrong, but basically 
Uh, the Museum of the Bible is this really popular, really well-known, relatively new museum where you can find all this wonderful information about the Bible and the history of it, that sort of thing. And what they've had is they've actually had some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the term that's used, <laughs> they've had it housed there that people could look at, and it's just popped into the news, into popular awareness at least, that these are forgeries, they're all forgeries, they're all wrong. Um, is, am I summarizing that news correctly, you think? Yeah, uh, essentially, the, the Museum of the Bible had in their possession 16 fragments of what they believed were Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and it it turned out that they were fake. Now, this in one way is not hugely new news. Um, in 2018, uh, they had like a scholarly audit and five of the 16 were discovered to be fake. And so they removed those from um, their uh, display. Uh, nice. And so that was news at that point. And there was actually a suspicion that uh, others were forgeries. Uh, in fact, an, a number of of key scholars going back, I I think at least to 2017, if not before that, uh, were speculating um, guys like uh, Aristine uh, Justness and Brent Nongbury. Uh, you can go back and look. There were um, articles written, uh, academic articles and just like blog posts on their on their websites saying, you know, maybe we should take a second look at these. They don't mm -hmm. really look up to snuff. Um, yeah. But it's just been recently that that they've announced that not only those other five out of the 16 were fake, but that all of the 16 are are forgeries. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it makes the headlines. It certainly makes a good headline. Yeah, especially that, because the know, Dead Sea Scrolls dead. are so well known. And the headlines, the way they read, I can't help but note the way they read, right? Dead Sea Scrolls in Museum of the Bible are all forgeries to a normal person. To a normal person, mm -hmm. they're thinking that means that there are full-length full scrolls from the mm -hmm. Dead Sea in the Museum of the Bible. Sounds like they probably have some pretty good copies of it through the Museum of the Bible. And they're all forgeries, which which then you go, but I know the Dead Sea Scrolls are connected to some important you know, apologetics issues related to the Bible. So what does this mean? What does this mean? And what you're telling me, and you use the word fragments, describe to us real quick what exactly was in the Museum of the Bible that was found to be forgeries? Like how much content was actually there? Very little to no content. So um, there was barely any writing on them. Uh, and the writing that was on them didn't necessarily have any sort of variation from the text that we knew before. So in terms of the grand scheme of things, uh, these were these were pretty... Um, these are pretty insignificant and them being legitimate or fake really doesn't do anything to how we how we understand the text. They were pretty, pretty small. And like I said, uh, you know, we have the example of the Great Isaiah Scroll, but the vast majority of these um, are so fragmented uh, that, I mean, it took decades to put them together and actually piece together what, I mean, the text even uh, said. A lot of these... Um, were uh, preserved in, in things like cigar boxes because they were just like so so affected by weather and mm -hmm. um, by you know, bugs. And the, I mean, it's 2,000-year-old paper. So I wouldn't look that good at 2,000 years old. Yeah. So yeah. In, yeah. in that sense, speak for they're yourself. doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what, 
what I think the normal Christian, the first question they have is, how does this affect my Bible, right? And um, it's true that the Dead Sea Scrolls are used, as I understand it, in in some decisions translators make in some places or in textual criticism. They're, they're, they're weighing information from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Are these fragments, these 16 fragments, are they part of this weighing you know, are, are people looking at these little fragments making decisions about what they think the Bible really says based upon these? No. That, that's, that's the, I mean, that's that, the short that's, answer. That's the short answer. The short answer is no. Yeah. I mean, when I first read the article or, or the headline, I thought, wait, whoa, this is really interesting. And as I read more of it, I realized this is more headline than article, um, in my opinion. So in short, what, what are the implications for the Bible or for Christianity from the discovery of the forgeries of these these fragments? I think, um, if anything, the implication is that we we should be more cautious in general um, of claims, um, claims of of new discoveries or claims of forgeries, uh, no matter what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, what comes to mind is you know the first century Mark fragment uh, that was big news a, a few years ago. I mean, in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. there was this announcement that there was this manuscript of Mark that was discovered and it was dated to the first century. And that was a, oh, yeah. that was a big deal. Cause not only would it be our earliest manuscript of any of the Bible, it would be our earliest manuscript of Mark by like 200 years. Yeah. Like I remember where it was announced and everybody was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then a lot of yeah. us were just following, like waiting for more information, waiting for, and it took years before they were like, yeah, no, well, whatever. Not really. <laughs> yeah. So, and it actually came yeah. out in, in, in 20, uh, 2019 last year that um, not only was this not a new discovery it was actually from a collection of manuscripts that we knew about before the oxyrhynchus papyri from egypt uh but that it, it wasn't first century and although they did date it earlier it was still like late third early fourth century um, mm-hmm. but a lot of the evangelical community a lot of the apologetics community they jumped on this mm-hmm. quote-unquote discovery and made a lot of it, and it was like in the ether, and it was like this this urban myth, and mm-hmm. you know, evangelical apologetic type. Hey, I remember because I I do apologize. I remember thinking like, oh great, I can I can share that we have a first century fragment of Mark, which puts the dating of Mark, you know, back. I mean, we already know it's first century, but it's just it's a good thing. The earlier, the better. Um, and I thought about it, and I looked into it a little bit, and I thought. I'm going to wait till I have more information. It, I don't feel like I've mm-hmm. really got solid ground yet. And I'd rather not use it than use it and find out it's wrong. Uh, so I'm just yeah, going to wait. A lot of guys got burned. <laughs> a lot of guys got burned. A lot of big yeah. names in the Christian um, academic world got burned because they, yeah. they made more of it than they should have. And yeah. I remember thinking, um, I wasn't really in the, the trenches of my academic work um, at that point. Um, but when I did start to get really into the world of, of academia and biblical studies, uh, thinking back on that, uh, an unpublished manuscript might as well be a non-existent manuscript. I mean, if you can't publish it and open it up to scrutiny to Mm -hmm. the academic community, I mean, Mm -hmm. might as well not exist. So talking about it makes absolutely no, it, it, it benefits no one. And it actually just creates almost like a mythology, um, that, that is largely unhelpful. Um, in terms of what this means for um, how we understand uh, discoveries or forgeries, I think we can we can take this as a cautious warning. 
to say, you know, let's wait for thing the, the dust to settle on everything and what the actual implications are. Because like you said, I mean, even with that Mark fragment, if it was, if it did turn out to be first century, what were the implications? I mean, in one sense, it would have been cool, but wouldn't have mm -hmm. redated Mark, wouldn't mm -hmm. really have changed anything we know about the text. Um, it, it but it would have been anecdotally nice to share in conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that and, would have been and nice. So, yeah, it definitely. Um, but, but in that sense, one of the things we can take away is to be more cautious yeah. uh, than not. And mm -hmm. the other thing uh, to take away is just to ask, yeah, how does this, like you, you've asked, Mike, how does this impact what I believe? And in the grand scheme of things, although the headlines, you know, uh, uh, when we use words like forgeries, um, those are big ones that get a lot of clickbait. But in reality, uh, the, the, the implications of this are, are minimal to zero. Yeah. So it doesn't affect biblical media. scholarship. It doesn't affect um, the readings of the text. When we have variant readings and we're trying to figure out what the proper reading of the original text was. It doesn't affect. Yes. Like you're not looking at a translation going, was this translated based on those forgeries? The answer is going to be no. Mm -hmm. um, what it really affects is just a, a wise word about general caution that we don't jump the gun when we're making claims about things. And uh, maybe you right. could speak to that briefly and say, like, what do you think the implications of this are for the Museum of the Bible? Because to me, that's probably where the biggest implications are. It seems like it's dragging their reputation into the mud. Yeah, and and that's where um, that's where it does have some some pretty big ripple effects. Uh, unfortunately, the Museum of the Bible hasn't had a super great track record uh, since they opened. So they're associated with the the backers are the Green family, um, which uh, are um, the owners, I don't know what the right term is, of of Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby, uh, yeah. Uh, so they're associated with that. And so they're, you know, millionaires, if not billionaires. They had this incredible Bible uh, history collection because they are evangelical Christians and they had the money to sort of finance this thing. And as that grew, they had this plan to open this museum and make it available to the public, which I think is a, is a very good idea. Is a, mm -hmm. uh, The intention was good. When they decided to increase their collection, they started to look to other collections and other sellers in order to grow that. And mm -hmm. that's where things started to go awry. Yeah, so in, in 2018, uh, as a result of their efforts to expand their collection, they ended up paying $3 million in fines uh, because uh, almost thousands, well, not almost, thousands of artifacts were seized that ended up being uh, black market uh, purchased from countries like Iraq. And um, so there was, there was some uh, dealing there that, that was... Uh, underhanded, and then they actually got caught up in the whole first century mark debacle um, because they were named as as a potential buyer somehow. Uh, there, there's a lot of confusion there as to what exactly was going on. But it sounds to be as nice as I, possible. It sounds like they were just in too big of a hurry to accomplish their goals, and they were cutting some corners, and it has caused their reputation to suffer um, as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, but they've been honest about these fragments, though, right? Because as I understand it, what I've read was that they actually hired an independent person to examine the fragments, and then they ch and you know they hired they could have just hid them away, right? They could have let no one touch them, but they hired that person, and they were allowed the results to be published publicly. I mean, that's why the article's out there now. Um, is that right? 
Yeah, and we can give credit where credit is due. They, I think they did go to the efforts they should have to a you know make sure that these things were verified and b uh make it public um, because it, it was made public very quickly after the discovery of them being fake so mm-hmm. we can at least give them the benefit of the doubt there uh, that their their intentions weren't nefarious um although it certainly doesn't cast a very good light on the whole sort of collection and and what's going on there mm-hmm. um but I I think while their um uh while while their intention was was correct their their method of you know mm-hmm. a, a acquiring things and going about um the expansion of of the actual museum was maybe n- a little bit misguided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, and I do think it's common, it's almost like a parable in apologetics stuff that we both care about, which is that you know don't be reckless in your apologetic approach in your defenses of the Christian faith, because the fallout of cutting your corners, it will, it will Mm -hmm. disparage Christianity in the eyes of many people, even though it's really only you and your methods that are the problem. It's not the truth of Christianity. And this is a perfect parable of that because it's like the, this stuff affects the Bible in no way, shape or form, no measurable sense or the truth of Christianity in no measurable sense. But it, but it feels that way to many people. Right, they they their their gut goes oh, like this is somehow a strike against the trustworthiness of the scripture. The museum of the Bible has some sort of mm-hmm. issues, you know, um, that not pervasive. Not everything there is now should be thrown out or something, but there are some issues that that translates to them into meaning something more than it means. And so we we want to be careful that we don't do that. Um, and we try to refine. I try to refine my own apologetic approaches all the time. Find things that I can say better, or things I shouldn't say, <laughs> because I want to try to present my best foot forward in the presenting the truth of Christianity. But the thing I want to talk to you about now is some stuff I've seen. Just just like we see, uh, hey, you know, shame on you guys because you cut some corners and you didn't do your homework, and now it's being shown that we need to get get rid of these fragments. There are those who are not cutting their corners or who are cutting corners in response to this. And their response is the Dead Sea Scroll fragments are false. And then their head, Dead Sea Scrolls, unreliable, Bible unreliable, Christianity, not true. So I'm going to read to you a couple Twitter posts. These are tweets, real tweets from real people in response to the news that these are forgeries. Um, So one says, we can stop pretending that a deity exists. (laughs) What's your response to that, Wes? Well, um, I mean, even if even if all the authentic Dead Sea Scrolls were turned out to be forgeries, I mean, what does that have to do with a deity existing? I mean, it certainly doesn't change the uh, Kalam cosmological argument or anything like that. Um, So uh, and and like I said before, for a long time, our our the undergirding texts that we translated what we get the English Old Testament from. Um, was done without the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't even affect the the text in one way. It, it, it adds to our knowledge of the text, but mm-hmm. it doesn't break apart the text. And it certainly doesn't disprove a deity. Um, that's a that's a pretty big stretch. Yeah, it, it is. And I would say um, it th- that is a bigger mistake than any mistake that the Green family has made so far that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to say well, it, these 16 fragments are forgeries therefore atheism like that that is a yeah. pretty big worldview error 
um, to make. Obviously, he wouldn't defend that. He just, I don't think he would. He just throws it out there because that's just where some people are. Yeah, it's kind of like me walking to my mother-in-law's uh, house and seeing, uh, you know, those plastic apples on on the counter, uh, plastic fruit, and me picking up an apple and going, well, the apple isn't real, I guess. I guess no apples are real. We can yeah. stop pretending yes. that apple pie exists. There's no such thing yeah, as fruit just, <laughs> at that no point. Yeah. Fruit. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Okay, here's another one. This this is from uh, <clears throat> Jay Jordan, who commented on this article, this the same article I'm quoting here, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the, in the Museum of the Bible are all forgeries, which is a somewhat misleading title, to be honest, to a normal person. Not, not to someone like you, but to a lay person it is. Um, <clears throat> Jay Jordan says, quote, matches the Bible perfectly. Oh, because they're fake so that everything else <laughs> yeah, is fake. You get it. You get it. And, oh, and the, yeah. I interact a lot with atheists online. So you you, you just start, you, you, you almost start reading this kind of sarcasm and implications in everybody's comments because they do it so much. And I'm talking about every atheist. I'm talking about the atheists online who comment atheist comments all the time. That That is, mm-hmm. it's pervasively mocking and ridiculing and imp- implying things. Um and so anyway, yeah, matches the Bible perfectly is the statement here. Um, and your response to that? I mean, sure, if you throw out, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of arguments for the reliability of the scriptures, both externally and internally, um, all of archaeology uh, that we have to back it up, uh, you know, uh, internal coherence and undesigned coincidences, and um, any number of lines of reasoning for the reliability of the scriptures. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's reductionistic to a point where it's just like, you know, it's a talking point. That's, it that's all it is. It, it doesn't go farther than Twitter. Mm-hmm. I would never stand up any level of, I mean, it wouldn't even stand up a Google search. So. <laughs> yes. All right, last one. Um, and this one, I'll, I think this one might have been, um, that sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, a lot of atheists will will I've experienced will ask leading questions that are just or statements they'll make that are meant to like plant an idea in your head. I'm sorry, but there is a growing movement of atheists online that literally are just trying to uh, manipulate people, even emotionally manipulate people. Um, it's called street mm-hmm. epistemology, and it's not about thinking clearly. It's it's about manipulating people. At any rate, but let's let's answer this as though it's a very sincere statement from a, a, a sincere believer. And the statement she says is, what else is fake that we've grown to believe? What else is fake that we've grown to believe in response to this discovery? Uh, what's your What would your counsel be for that person? I mean, it's it's reasoning on what we don't know, not on what we do know. So, I mean, we know a lot. <laughs> we know a lot about the Bible in particular. I mean, we have... Mm-hmm. We arguably have 2,000 years of scholarship, um, you know, going back to the earliest Christians articulating uh, the truthfulness of, of the Christian worldview, um, going back to the gospel authors themselves, going to painstaking lengths to name places and rulers and locations and names of individuals who were alive at those times so that the, the readers who were alive during the lifetime of the writing could, you know, go back and cross-reference them. I mean... Um, so to to start reasoning on what we don't know, I mean, that's just bad history, for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. You don't do that with anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have a lot to go on uh, with the Bible. Um, we have a phenomenal amount. We certainly have more than 
other stories and uh, narratives and individuals within history. So it's no more logical um, than, you know, holding a standard that's unrealistic to say Alexander the Great and saying, well, you know, I know we, we know virtually uh, all of, of his life, you know, his story, what he did, but what don't we know? Mm-hmm. I mean, do we really know Alexander the Great? What don't we know about mm-hmm. Alexander the Great? I mean, it's just, it's a yeah. funny line of reasoning. <clears throat> yeah. What, it's, it's an argument from silence. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, what else is silence? fake? <clears throat> it's like saying that you have to, um, it, it, it's creating an unnecessary burden of proof for the things you currently believe. Okay. I know I have good reason to believe that, but what if it's fake? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you can always and, say that about uh, anything. This, this creates a, a great degree of paranoia and unjustified different beliefs you might hold. I believe that's a forgery. Why? Because it might be. <laughs> yeah. An absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And so mm-hmm. you can't reason that yeah. way. Arguments from silence uh, range from uh, poor to terrible. That's the range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they very rarely ever make any impact on a definitive statement about a belief system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just as good to say in response to this to yourself, even if, if you feel what else is fake that I've grown to believe as you just say, what else is true that I've grown to believe? <laughs> you know I mean? um, but let me add one more thought to it, which is this. You're believing that, the, that these Dead Sea Scroll fragments are forgeries. And for the same reasons we believe those are forgeries, we believe the other ones are authentic, right? Because we're running the same mm-hmm. kinds of tests, we're taking the same kinds of measures to verify, and we go, hey, we have 100,000-something authentic ones, and we've got these 16 forgeries over here that don't affect our scholarship in any significant fashion. I think that you can say, because we can discover forgeries like this, we can have even more confidence that the other ones are legitimate, and then we can sort of set that issue aside. Yeah, the same method of reasoning that that forces us to say that these are forgeries forces us to say that, like you said, the others are authentic, and not only the others, uh, but you know the the underlying manuscript tradition of both the Old and the New Testaments that we have that make up our modern English translations. That mm-hmm. those are reliably transmitted and mm-hmm. uh, accurate for the process of rendering the modern text that we now know as the old and new Testament. It's the exact same standard that we're applying. Um, So it's, it's a, it's a silly argument to make. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good to know. Good to know. So um, I guess that's about it. I just, I just wanted to put this out there because I had a lot of people asking me questions about this topic and I thought I want to bring someone on who has more education and expertise in this area than I certainly do um, because I just wanted to give them that sense of getting on the inside of this issue. Because when you read the headlines and you read the articles, it doesn't feel like it informs the layperson very well. And so that's what this video mm-hmm. is meant to do is just inform the layperson well, answer a few questions that do come up, deal honestly with the data. And uh, thanks, Wes, for coming on. Uh, I'm actually going to have Wes on my channel again real soon here. I think it's like next week, right? Um, next Something Tuesday. like that. I think, I think next Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken, we're going to be doing this. We're going to do a... Um, a stream on the topic of, um, well, gosh, what was the topic we were doing? We're going to talk about Mary. 
Mary. That's right. Mary. Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll get more into that. So we're in some more kind of theology and apologetics issues related to Mary and modern, not Catholicism. That's not the issue here, but modern um, uh, weird, weird ideas that are propagated in popular culture on the topic of Mary Magdalene, Jesus's wife, supposedly things like that. And so Wes is going to help us weigh in on those types of things. So, so thanks Wes for joining me. Um, God bless you, man. I, I, I put some links from, from Wes suggested by him. If you want more information on the Dead Sea Scrolls, it should be in the video description. Uh, you can click those links and study up on it. There's a lot of interesting, neat stuff that'll keep you going for hours while you're uh, quarantined. <laughs> so yeah, thanks Wes. You betcha. <laughs>